Welcome to Mind the Shift, a podcast about a shifting world and shifting minds. I am Anders Bolling. We have touched on the concept of nation states and governance several times during this season of the podcast. Like every part of our societal construct, the nation and its governance is an idea, but we're so used to it that we perceive it as almost nature-given. But when you think of it, it's obvious that borders, borders have come and gone and changed, and small-scale cross-border interaction as well as large-scale global cooperation show that things can be dealt with just fine on all kinds of geographical levels. And why not different practical and technical levels as well? I myself, I used to think that it was cool to compare the numbers of countries that I, I and others had been to. Today, I'm less impressed. One of my favorite apps is Google Earth, where you can fly virtually over the surface of our beautiful planet. And it looks just like when you fly over it in a real airplane. No borders to be seen. Just sea, land, rivers, mountains, and settlements where people live. My guest today is Karin Ism. I have read and listened to some of her ideas lately, and it's great stuff, I can assure you, and I'm really excited to dive deeper. Karin is what you might call a governance inventor. She's the co-founder of Future of Governance Agency, FOGA, an agency that brings, as, it's, as it says, power literacy to the public and its institutions. She's a faculty at Singularity University, the chair of Effective Altruism's Swedish branch and director of research at BitNation, a borderless digital nation and citizenship. She used to be the executive director of Global Challenges Foundation. Karin Ism is also co-author of the book How to Rule a World, a guide to the established and emerging tools for power and governance in the 21st century. Welcome to Mind the Shift, Karin. Thank you very much. About a year ago, you uh, spent a whole month at a very high altitude, 4,200 meters high up in the, in the Himalayas, in an extreme environment, and it was um, a simulation of the planet Mars. Now, yeah. that sounds really <laughs> like science fiction. Tell us more. How was that, and what were you trying to find out there? So, uh, I think when you think about governance, it's very easy when you apply it to our planet, to Earth, to very quickly get bogged down by the complexity of the structures that are in place right now. But at the same time, we have this red, still very much unexplored planet. And so the idea with exploring governance, which essentially is the architecture for power uh, in a place that is that much of a clean slate. Uh, that was the interest for me, and that was the reason that um, this is something that I've invested uh, quite a lot of time into, um, well, both exploring and then physically being there and trying to um, see what kind of governance becomes possible when you are dealing with such scarcity, essentially. And so the entire project, this was the first out of what will be several uh, attempts or several uh, simulations. So the next step is go actually going to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> there are some steps in between, but okay. yeah, that is definitely on the on the map. Um, but the, um, 
um, what we what we are applying or what I think is a very interesting model to explore is Eleanor Ostrom's design principles for how to govern commons. So that's quite a stark contrast to the quite military um, ways to go about um, hierarchy and um, organization of a society, which are, there there is definitely a lot of traction for just taking um, that kind of more military model mm. and applying that. And of course, you know, there are many interests that goes into how to govern the actual um, other celestial bodies than, okay. than Mars. We currently have a, a treaty in place that is very idealistic and that has been, um, it's called the Outer Space Treaty, uh, that has been in place since the You have that at, at FOGA, you mean? You have, no, no, the whole world. Oh, the whole we world as a, We it. as a collective oh, have okay, it. We have yeah. it. We have it. It's it's 17 articles that cool. are, um, they state, among other things, that any resource that is claimed or any knowledge that is mined um, mm. cannot be uh, just the property of a certain company or a certain nation state, but must come all um, all of humanity to um yeah, must be useful. To, must to be the benefit useful. of everybody. To the benefit of all. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And then we have a lot of new uh, national uh, legislation that is being passed that very much um, over... I mean, it doesn't override it because it's just national and this is yeah. an international agreement. But the the new articles that are being passed on a national level definitely have much more of a uh, what-can-we-commodify kind of angle. Well, so, it yeah. sounds kind of self-evident that the, the space, in, to the extent that we're going to explore the space and other planets, that it can't be national or, or, or even, I mean, the EU or the UN. It has to be some kind of global governance. Uh, I mean, that's just spontaneously. I, I think that sounds pretty self-evident. But Yeah, and I think what you, what you just touched upon is so uh, crucial because that is the reaction, I think, of everyone you talk to. Like every person on the street can look up at the moon or and be like, yeah, this is, this, we're not going to go up there and like draw some lines in the sand no. or uh, it doesn't feel right and no. it doesn't feel reasonable. But that is pretty much what is currently happening still. Uh, so uh, if we're not vigilant and if we don't um, actively advocate, as in every case uh, that has to do with power, if we don't actively um, fight to get it, it, it will be, um, as it seems like right now, a replication of what we have right now. Mm. Um, That's a bit gloomy to think that way. Yeah, I but think it's, yeah. I think it's strange enough that that these superpowers are trying to divide like the Antarctica between yeah. them, yeah. because there's not. I mean, there's nothing. That, well, of course, there are resources. That that's why. Of course, minerals and things somewhere beneath uh, the ice. But it, nobody lives there. It's just penguins. It seems mm-hmm. really, really old school. I mean, it's it's it's. I, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you're. I mean, you're absolutely right. It has to do with resources. But yeah. one of the resources that our current system is obsessive about mm. is land and territory, uh, for for many reasons, uh, military, but also just because we are still embodied beings, which brings us to, uh, you mentioned my involvement with BitNation. I'm not with them any longer, but the reason that I gravitated okay. towards it was uh, because um, this idea, as you say, to an extent antiquated uh, of thinking about territory as the way to enact control, that is contingent on us as um, still 
these very physical beings. Mm. And I would argue that we are becoming less and less physical all the time. Mm. And that that is something that also COVID sped up now, but that was underway um, regardless for a long time. So that um, dematerialized world order is what I am particularly interested in right now. That's cool. Yeah, do you think that, uh, because I myself, I, I have this idea that, or I'm convinced that the fact that the world is integrated in a way that it has never been before in history has has uh, large uh, implications for for all kinds of things. And do you think that that might might speed up the a notion among people that maybe territory isn't that important because we can we can we can obviously see everyone that we are integrated and we are connected because I mean thanks to the internet we know in real time what is happening on the other side of the planet immediately so do, do, do you agree with that oh yeah for sure like if we if you look at how was the nation state possible how was it constructed the printing press was pivotal because and and also other means of mass communication because it could act like the glue where you could tell the story of oneness you could say that this is a unit we inside of these borders it doesn't matter how different our actual lives are. We're still going to tell this story of that we belong together. Mm -hmm. And language, of course, was key in that too. But in one language, telling one story about us being a a unity. Mm -hmm. And then we have the internet that's like the glue. That's uh, that's the solvent to this glue. So if the printing press was the glue that made the nation state possible, the internet is the solvent to that glue. And I think in the current iteration that we experience the internet, it's so far from the potential uh, that internet has. And something that will likely help us come much further in the potential, in realizing the potential, is immediate translation algorithms. Because people are still consuming news and still consuming the uh, narration of the story of the world through, um, to a large extent, their own language, their mother tongue in in one way or another. Uh, But when we can read a Chinese outlet as easily Mm. and as nuanced as we can read something in in whatever language we're currently digesting, yeah. and then things will really be interesting yeah, because then yeah. we can also really learn, like we can connect without language. Essentially, it's the fall of um, the uh, the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. and we're we're that is so within grasp. Yeah, yeah, with it's maybe within our lives lifetimes. Oh, <laughs> lifetime. for sure, absolutely. Like I think how... many algorithms we have quite. A lot of uncertainty when they will reach a certain uh, goal. We are wrong constantly, or or uh, trying to assess the uh, the trajectory of the deep learning algorithms has proven to be very difficult. Mm. Uh, but when it comes specifically to the uh, immediacy immediacy of of translation algorithms, I, I don't think that ten fifteen years is. Like by then, you and I will be able to have like a little, like in the, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the oh, bubble fish. Sorry, I haven't the... read that, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I've heard about the yeah, uh, bubble fish. Yeah. Bubble fish, yeah. That's the name of an of, of a uh, website, isn't it? Is I'm it? sure. I, I remember that it was Alta Vista's first translation was called Bubble Fish. Oh, but yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. The idea is that uh, you have something mm. in your ear, so you can understand everyone, and they can okay. understand you. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think I think the translation apps that 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 exist. I mean, Google Translate, for instance, is some kind of an embryo to this. What you're, I'm, they're getting better all the time, and yeah. I'm I'm really I use them, yeah. and I think I haven't used them on Chinese, but on 
I'm six or seven languages. I mean, mm. actively. Yeah. Even yeah. in my work as a journalist, I've I've been I've used it, uh, and of course you have to be cautious that that the translation might be might not be exactly accurate, but but it it helps you to to kind of understand what they're talking about and. Yeah. So yeah, mm. you're probably right. Okay, back to Mars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or the Himalayas. Yeah. You were up there for a month, and you didn't you didn't dive into how it was physically. <laughs> what it, did did you? Were there hardships? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was horrible. It was okay. I didn't I didn't like it whatsoever. No, I I've never felt as grateful for Earth as okay. after this for sure. Like it was. Um, were uh, you living in a bubble of some kind? Or? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you could you could call it like that. It's more or less like glamping or something like that. You know, it's. Okay. Uh, but the the reality of it is, you also. Um, you pretend, but quite seriously. Uh, so you talk about the earth in past tense, you um, you really commit to whatever the protocol is to like what you do in a day. So you, um, you really try to get as deep into um, what it would be like to to leave this beautiful planet that we have behind mm-hmm. and live in something that is so scarce. And but it's, you were a group yeah, of people who, who, who lived there together, lived there together yeah, and tried yeah. to, try to from scratch, build some kind of constitution, some kind of we rules. We did, exactly. And that's yeah. what you did. Yeah. And so we built it in the, pre, in the pre-simulation and we used the, the applicable parts of uh, Ostrom's design principles. So uh, graduated sanctions, for example, like how do you, do you put um, one person in charge to be sort of the police of this kind of venture? Or do you rather try a distributed system where everyone is in charge of trying to course correct each other? Yeah. And that really brings into question like how our uh, punitive systems work. Like why are we um, in a habit of penalizing one another? Mm. And and the idea with, with Ostrom's, um, the core of her work has a lot to do with that. If you are bought into the process of why certain rules are in place, and if you believe in them, and if you have a shared goal, and if you believe that the um, distribution of resources and the rules in place are just, and that they're justified, and that you think that they are, that you're bought into the idea essentially, mm. um, then you will be, um, you will you will want to follow them. So it's it challenges the idea that people are um, have to have someone else tell them what to do, yeah. and and then using force to make sure that people comply. So it's mm. much more empowering than that. Mm. Um, and I I do believe that that system is not all uh, used. Um, I mean, you can use different terminology for it, but this idea that people are actually able to both come up with really good rules mm. and follow them. Um, I think that is a realization that more and more of us will come to as the existing systems fail mm. us. Mm. Um, for um, the ones of us who come from uh, fairly well-functioning states, there is a, this can be more of a cognitive shift to start to think about um, concepts like mutual aid and concepts of peer-to-peer societies because there isn't that strong a need. But if you are in a badly governed um, state or if you have experiences with failing currencies and and if you have seen how fragile central governance systems can be, then there is a much uh, more obvious case to be made for um, 
something that is less fragile and and more um, sustainable, more and, sustainable uh, and conti- contingent on people's care for one another yeah. rather than people's more blind trust in some kind of authority. That sounds a lot better in my ears. Mm-hmm. Comes to mind two two expressions. One is uh, a little gloomy, perhaps, and and is uh, connected to the old old matrix and the other one is 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 newer the first one i'm thinking of is tragedy of the commons mm. and the other one is wisdom of the crowd mm. Mm. i mean there's, there's there's a dichotomy there and uh, do you, can you delve into that because i know you've been talking about the this this concept of the tragedy of the commons mm. and eleanor ostrom as you also mm. mentioned i think she she doesn't really buy into that she has some other ideas about the commons and how we can all we can all decide on things uh, collectively in a better way exactly i mean she went about to say okay so so we have this mention of the tragedy of the commons but is it actual is there a factual basis for that and so the interesting thing about her work is that it's just based on its case studies she goes to place after place that have different situations where there has been a common that has um either been in some threatened situation ecologically or something that ought to live up to this idea that when there isn't a company or a state that has the explicit um, responsibility to to care for something when it, when something that is important is instead shared by a, a larger group, then um, it doesn't work, uh, that it has to be a state or a, or a company that mm. takes care of it. And so what her case studies show is that actually uh, there are plenty of examples where you have rather the wisdom of the crowd, where you have people who can very well understand that this, be it a park or be it Wikipedia or what it, whatever it might be, um, this is something we all want, we all want to enjoy it, and we can all care for it in an active manner. So it's uh, we're not these uh, incapable um like um children, children. Really. yeah yeah <laughs> exactly we, we have to ask daddy and mommy if precisely. we can do do something yeah 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 but that to believe that not only you yourself uh, although that can be a that can be a challenge too but to there to believe in that you need to debunk some myths about people being so selfish people being so self-interested only and so on and i think that's where for example Rutger Bregman is doing such an extremely important job right now mm-hmm. with his book uh, Humankind which mm. its original title in in Dutch is like most people are okay or all right or something like that uh, be, and what he does is he essentially goes through myth after myth about how um, people are not able to collaborate and just says that these are not factual stories we are very capable we are conditioned to believe those things. yes we are and we have been yeah. for thousands of years i think yeah because it's so from the top-down yeah. system because this is the way to legitimize uh, abuse of power yeah uh, and call it not abuse of power but call it the necessity so to when yeah. when you don't believe a necessary that, evil. well you uh, might think yeah. it's even evil but it's a necessary evil so, yeah. exactly otherwise it would all be chaos chaos yeah. and anarchy I, yeah. I was going to ask you about that because it's I'm really fascinated by that as well so I'm glad that you <laughs> bring it up and because it's always people say well people can't uh, can't take responsibility would as you say we will they would fall back into anarchy and chaos but it's always these other people that can't <laughs> take responsibility yeah. Yeah. For things. I yeah. mean, if you ask them, the people who are saying this themselves, would you be re- irresponsible? No, yeah. no, no. For me, of course not. 
Exactly. And my neighbors, no, 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 they're good. <laughs> and my family, no, but everybody else. Yeah, yeah. It's like universal basic income. When people are asked, what would you do if the pressure of making um, ends meet was taken away from you? What would you do with that? Then people say, oh, wow, yeah, okay, so I would start this thing and I've been wanting to do this forever and yeah. I would learn this. And uh, But what would everyone else do? And And then people say, well, other people couldn't handle it. It's like, well, where it's, are it's they? Ridicu- yeah. when, you, when you start thinking about it, it's really ridiculous. It's just, a, it's, I don't know, it's a con- m- mental construct. Yes, and someone, or rather uh, leaderships all over the world throughout history have benefited tremendously from that. It is when we start to trust each other, it's like Plato wrote about this, yeah. that the biggest uh, like threat you could have uh, for anyone who's going after some kind of Um, oppressive position is people who are deeply bonded and who love each other and who care for each other. Mm. That's the truly, um, that's the challenger. Wow. And now is the time in history when we have the possibility of of utilizing this uh, power of the the, the wisdom of the crowd. Yeah. It hasn't been possible before because we haven't been able to connect that effectively. Yeah. Uh, so now is the time to challenge the old order. It certainly is. Yeah. It is. And it is such a beautiful moment in time. And I think that is, um, it can be very lost if you just uh, watch the news cycle. Mm. Uh, and what sometimes, and that's also why like, why me and, and uh, Dr. Julian Lair have uh, written this book, has to do with essentially sort of encouraging people sometimes to turn off the news and turn on their own um, world construction mm. um, mode. <laughs> so sort of um, instead of seeing these gloomy tendencies and trends and events, take a step back think about what's important to mm. you mm. and to the people that you care about mm. and how you can construct that in a way that is as strong and as fun as possible and then go about doing that. Yeah. That's the way to be an informed citizen, not to follow whatever is the, the latest conflict. It's being constructive. No, so they are just, just snippets of the reality that exactly. happens exactly. to be dramatic. Exactly. It's like the don't argue, build. Yeah. Argue, build, beautiful. Yeah, I'm a journalist myself, but um, but I, I recommend people to cut down a little bit on on news mm. consumption mm. because it's it's not good for you if you if you no. watch the news twenty four seven. Of course, it's good to know some of the things that are happening that are there. I mean, the narrative of what is happening. But, but it's also, I think, we we can we can challenge the idea of because um, I think some of us watch the news almost like it's our duty, mm. like we feel uh, bad or we feel that we're not informed enough yeah. if we're not watching. But the question is, what are you? What is your obligation as a citizen, mm. and what who are you obliged to? Because exactly. uh, it's it, one of the feelings that I. Um, have encountered in way too many rooms, like places where you would think that everyone just feels they know what's going on, is that people have this guilty conscience feeling, I really ought to know this. Like, I don't completely know what's going on. Like, I don't, whether it's I don't understand the digital world or I don't know that much about the world order or I don't understand the economic system. A lot of people... Uh, I think it's hard to find someone who doesn't mm. feel that way. And they beat up themselves yeah. because they yeah. don't. 
and all these things. And that is so disempowering, mm-hmm. like to be in that state. Yeah. Whereas it, it's... Does this even go for, for um, uh, decision makers? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when it comes to technology. Especially when it comes to uh, what is already forming as a digital mm. order. And, and then we're back to the idea with the digital jurisdictions, which is, I think, something that is currently so neglected, but is under... Um, it's taking over more and more of our lives. Yeah. Uh, and so what I would call a digital jurisdiction currently is a jurisdiction to to start with that word is a place where you have uh, rules in place and you have a way to enforce those rules. So currently most of our jurisdictions are um, they're following the borders of the states yeah. in the world. But is. precisely. But when we uh, go into our cyberspace when we go into the um all the places that we spend so much time be it on zoom or on facebook or whatever it might be um we are actually entering into a sphere where you have rules and you have ways to enforce those rules uh, so it's whether or not instagram decides to show you pictures in this order or that order it's whether twitter allows you to write this many characters or that many characters all of that is rules and there is a way to enforce it mm. but they're not enforced the way rules are enforced in our physical world with violence mm. or the monopoly of violence mm. which is underpinning the the nation state construct uh, instead it's enforced with automation So it's automated compliance. If you mm. want to write mm. a thousand words on in your little Twitter window, you can't. And that's brilliant. Uh, it means that we can suddenly turn enforcement into the same kind of enforcement that we have for uh, natural laws. That is, yes, you have no choice but to do what exactly what the programmer intended for you to do. And then if you want to change that rule, yeah. if you think it's a, it's, it's a lousy idea to yeah. just be able to write 240 characters in, on Twitter, you can you can go you can uh, you can uh, join forces with other Twitter users perhaps and uh, or how do you do that? Exactly. There is no due process. There is no, there due, is process, no, no. due process. There are, there are no no general rules for how to change no. rules. No. <laughs> in that and world. Precisely. And even if you are the most um subscribed to influencer on a certain platform, it doesn't give you any more leverage mm. to have anything to do with not electing the leadership and not changing the rules in any way. You can see how many YouTube creators are super frustrated with the rules, but there is no way to impact it. The entire digital space is a dictatorship or like four dictatorships. Yeah. Four dictatorships? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're the, the, the big companies. The four big, ma- big ones, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because if you look at the ownership, like who, which, um, it comes back to Alphabet, and uh, that owns all of Google services and YouTube and so on, and you have Facebook's ownership cluster and it's uh, and Microsofts and and these are uh, as in the corporate world in general, the ideals of democracy that we have talked so much about during the last um, couple of centuries and been so. Uh, enamored with, we never translated that uh, into the culture and the uh, the the, bis- the world of business. There we have a completely different set of expectations for what is supposed to deliver us a, qu- a quality world. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that those companies have uh, created and has the ownership of essentially the infrastructure for relationships, 
that starts to really matter. Mm, that's and, true. Well, these are big questions. I, I, I want to ask so much about the book. So let's let's go back to this this book. You have already started to talking about what it what it what it uh, contains. Um, you, it's called "How to Rule the World," very very humbly titled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, it's coming out. Uh, you mentioned that uh, I think uh, soon, beginning of next year. Or yeah, we're seeing it's we're we're waiting for the timing with COVID a little bit. Yeah. So uh, we'll see exactly when. But you can already sort of pre pre order and okay. things like that. Maybe you didn't mention it. I, I maybe we talked about it before. I think so. So the listeners are a bit confused. But anyway, so it's coming out soon. And you've written it together with um, uh, Julian Lair. Lair. Yeah. And I can say that it contains practically everything that I'd like to ask you about today, uh, judging by a table of contents that I've seen. Uh, and, and frankly, at least half of the things that I'm thinking about all the time, the stuff in, the, in this world that I'm thinking about. So it's it's really <laughs> big. It's, it's, it's amazing. So I guess it's a bit funny to ask you as one question, tell us about the book. But... Maybe I mean you've already been diving a little bit into the details here, but maybe you can just firstly uh, gi- give a brief overview of the book. What what is what's the general purpose of of this book that you're? The purpose is okay. empowerment. Mm. Uh, the purpose is to say, okay, so if we step away from the news cycle for a moment and we instead say, okay, what's the underpinning? What's What's the actual, what's happening here? Not how many seats are in a certain parliament, but what are the tools that we have employed to build the world as we currently know it? What are the core tools? And so the first part of the book is the 30 established tools from we touched upon the monopoly of violence, binding agreements, like what are the building blocks? Because a lot of the building blocks we have are brilliant and they were hard earned and they were I mean, governance innovation is a field of innovation like any other field. It's just way bloodier when it comes to how we uh, implement new ideas. Because when it comes to power, people don't like to give it up. So it's not like I have a new vacuum. Let's let's trade up to to this new kind of vacuum. No, when you have a new governance system, people have had to sacrifice immensely to get those things in place. So uh, first, taking stock at what are the the tools that are have been used so far. And you have you have uh, you list. You list 30, 30 tools. Yeah. So how do you come up with 30, number 30? <laughs> uh, I mean, we could have, of course, gone um, more granular, but we were looking for things that were on a similar order of magnitude. Okay. Uh, so things that really are game changers. And some of them, I think, are very known. Everyone knows what tax is, for example, the idea of taxation mm. or, or voting. But other things often... Um, are overlooked for how crucial they have been to our civilization. Registers, I would say, yeah, is... Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you never s- think of those no, as, as, as no, important. No, exactly. But the very first um, writing, human writing, that was ever found yeah. wasn't this like beautiful epic poem or anything like that. It was a ownership register yeah. and a register of who owes what to, hmm. to whom. And that's because it's the map of society. And currently the... Uh, entities that hold these registers of who owes what to whom and how are we related, how who owns what, uh, is states and banks. And that's key to why they that's are key. so important. And it was um, it was a necessity to scale our societies. And it was an innovation. Like, hey, we can write down things. And when we start to write that 
these things down, we can also start to transact with people we don't trust because we trust the middle man. We trust the person or the entity that holds this um, this register. And so that's what states and banks have become to us. They're, they're the go-between. So if I want to transact with someone... Um, who I, well, the way that we lend money, for example, I lend money all the time to people I don't ever know their names or anything like that because the bank is is standing in the uh, in the middle and I extend my trust to the bank and the bank, um, yeah, is supposed to be this agent of trust. Um, and so this is a system that managed, that helped us scale societies because we didn't have to um, to trust strangers, we could trust these middlemen. But then, of course, 2008 and many other instances, the trust has been breached and challenged over and over again. Like, to what extent can we trust these middle men, um, these intermediaries? Yeah. And that's where, of course, the blockchain is so yes. interesting. The cryptocurrencies. Exactly. They exactly. Yeah, because this is another way of holding a register. Mm. So this, so so, blockchains to me. Um, and I would say that's uh, not a contentious idea. It's the biggest update that we have had to registers in like 2,500 years. Yeah. And registers are. <laughs> so so that's the, the beauty of it also. When you said earlier that now we have the technology to actually organize societies in another way, that's why they're so key. Um, and sure, it's very uh, volatile, the currencies that have been um built on these blockchains but that's very reasonable considering where it, it's a suggestion of a new way mm. of doing something we've been doing in another way for for thousands of years so do you think that the cryptocurrencies uh, like bitcoin and others are some kind of an uh, intermediate step towards a world where we might not need money at all is that something you envisage or do you think that for so I think money gets a bad reputation sometimes. Okay. Um, and the origin of money is so interesting. It's, um, yeah, it seems we don't really be, know, do we? No. How it all started. No. We know that it's, uh, it's very unlikely to have started as, a, as something that followed on a barter society. Mm. That seems to be a myth, at least, okay. the whole barter society idea. And we think that it has to do with conflict. Mm. Like when people started to, when if you and I trust each other and you do something for me and I do something for you, it doesn't matter if it's not exactly the same thing because we have a general good vibe uh, between us and and that's, that's fine. But then when people have gotten into conflict, then they're like, yeah, but you owe me this, this, this. And then it becomes important to be able to become as granular as you can with money. So it seems to have that uh, as as one possible origin story that okay. when people get in conflict they, they want to be exact and money allows you to become exact. Yeah. Another origin story has to do with uh, being able to pay uh, soldiers. Uh, so again, it's it's connected to conflict there yeah. as well. Because, okay. uh, so, um, But you don't think maybe ever is going to disappear to completely? I, I think our general sort of what we gravitate towards quite uh, intuitively is a system of money that is IOUs, where we say, okay, I did this for you, you did this for me, and we keep sort of a loose ledger in our in the backs of our minds. And so I think systems like that, uh, but scaled, uh, could uh, could be extremely interesting, where it's not money as we currently 
know it. Oh, there is a there is a graph that's uh, just amazing that I would urge anyone to look at. If you if you Google uh, visual capitalist money, mm-hmm. and then you can look at the what money that's currently in the world, who has it, what it looks like. And there you will see something that I think shocks people. And that is how much of the money that is uh, in motion is derivatives. And I remember when uh, when I was writing the chapter on on money, and I was like, do I really have can, to can explain? Can you just brief, briefly just explain to the listeners what is a derivative? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> briefly. Yeah. No, but a derivative, um, they've been... Uh, They're a financial product. Mm. They're sort of a um, contract. They are a contract mm. of something that might happen in the future. Uh, so you could you could say, um, if you are going to, if I would love for an, an artist, uh, I would like to see an artist in Stockholm, uh, but I won't be here, so I can't stand in line to to get that uh, ticket. Mm-hmm. And we're not completely sure because of Corona if the artist is going to come here and so on. Yeah. So you and I make a deal uh, where we say, if this thing happens in the future, if this artist comes, then you're going to be in line and you're going to get a ticket for me. And then we make, uh, because we don't know exactly what the ticket price will be for that. So we make um, a deal that um, it's probably going to be something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I take the risk uh, that maybe um, the ticket price will be lower and then you make some money uh, and you take the risk uh, and you do the labor of standing in line and doing all these things for me. That would be a derivative, the deal that we have between us. Okay. That would be a derivative okay. called a, a future. Okay. And then there yeah. are a couple of different versions. Mm. But I think the... Calculated the, risk. Uh, calculated risk, yeah. yeah. And so the whole derivative market, is it's about that you start selling those papers. So someone says, okay, uh, what is the risk of this artist not coming? And, mm. and, and then you start to... Um, you create the market for those papers. And that is, shockingly enough, just the this vast part of all the, the money that is going around that mm. is those kind of papers. And that might sound like a silly example with like a concert, or but people are making derivatives about all kinds of things. And okay. the most famous one, of course, is the housing market, uh, where yeah, you... Yeah, before uh, 2008 crash. Precisely, and still. Uh, and still is. Yeah. Well, we've seen the film... Uh, Big Short. Big Short, mm. yeah. Mm. There you learn something about those things and and it it, I, it shows to me that I, I've been pondering money quite a bit lately actually because it's so it's such a strange concept it's mm. because it is it is nothing it's in a way it is nothing and it's everything it's 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 a kind of energy it and is a social construct yeah. and I think sometimes when we talk and it doesn't about correspond to anything no. concrete no no not anymore if it ever has I mean yeah. it, it, it used to correspond to some amount of gold or so mm. but i mean even then the price of gold was set of course in a in a in a uh, non-natural way so i mean it, it's never been really exactly concrete. exactly and i think you touch upon something really interesting there because some people say yeah since we decoupled money from gold now it's just nothing or whatever but as you say gold was also nothing like what is gold it's yeah, just I mean, something it's just, that shimmers you, you set a price on something and it's uh, who says who sets the price and, and for and because of what and on what yeah. grounds yeah. is it because it's practical use no not particularly practical i mean you can make uh, nice bracelets out of gold but mm. what else i mean it's really Yeah, very, th- very elu- elusive. It is, if that's the word. <laughs> it absolutely is. It's, um, it is a social construction, and I think sometimes that word, that concept of social construction, people tend to 
throw in a, just a social construction, only a social construction, as if social constructions were in some way weak or that money is nothing and things like that. But a social construction is pretty much the hardest thing that you can ever imagine building. It means that you have enough people, you have a critical mass of people who believe in the same thing at the same time. Mm. And that is hard to achieve, like as any marketer would tell anyone. like Because obviously, like I could start now, Currently, it would be illegal for anyone that's not a state to mint money. But I could start to trade like this a pen that I have in front of me and say, this is the new kind of currency mm. that would work perfectly, mm. um, except I would have to get everyone to believe that. Mm. And so what our current system has achieved is sustained belief. It's a belief system. It is a belief system. And uh, the thing that's interesting about the US dollar is that unlike many, because the average shelf life of a currency, do you want to guess how long it is before uh, belief collapses? I, don't, I, I, I would, no, I wouldn't have a, the faintest idea really, but probably quite a few years since you're asking. It's very short. It's yeah. 30 years. 30 years. Okay. About that's 30 years. And then the, the on average, that's when they... Throughout history. So it's, yeah. yeah, the ones that we have some kind of record. Okay. Of course, yeah. what the, most of history it remains unrecorded. But, but Like for the Zimbabwe know. dollar or uh, yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah, they come up and then to sustain belief is so hard. Yeah. And so the US dollar has been an, an anomaly in that sense. Yeah. Uh, and because everybody trusts the United States to keep keep steaming, <laughs> keep producing, and, and uh, yeah. Yeah, now we have many other states that are pinning their currencies to the dollar, and we have cryptocurrencies, stable coins, all kinds of um, So the dollar products. lives its life, uh, life it, of its own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So even when you have the U.S. economy uh, doing things that people might not believe are wise or stable, there is still like a separate, it's almost like a, or it is, a, to an extent at least, decoupled from the the general uh, US yeah, political. That's fascinating. It is. Um, but the question with anomalies is always, do you want to do you want to bet on an anomaly? Uh, and that's why I think it's very important to start creating because one of the one of the um, the big questions about money is so there are a couple of things we seem to really like in our money. We want it to be portable. We want it to be possible to break into smaller parts. We want it to be recognizable. Um, those that, That's not contentious. Like mm. We know that those are very useful things. Mm. But other things that are very contentious is who should have the right to control the money supply. Yeah. Uh, is that the state? That uh, central banks, central banks, like who who should get to control it, how and who should get to control how much is in motion, mm. because this is obviously the uh, the temptation that many leaders have fallen for, uh, of saying we could really get out of some trouble if we started to mint some more currency, if we um, and then you have the the threat, whether real or imagined, of um, of inflation yeah. as a result of that yeah. and of the trust in the currency decreasing. Uh, and and the more dramatic that uh, decrease is, the less stable you're able to, um, to keep that belief, the less useful is the currency. Mm. So the question is, uh, the, the third question very related to who gets to, uh, to control and um, control it in general is, should it be tied to personhood? Should it be traceable like that? And and some people might, especially if you've grown up in a um, in a state that has handled its control of currency fairly well, you might say, well, that sounds 
like a great way to find criminals or whatnot, like that yeah. follow the money yeah. in such a classic mm. um, way. But that uh, sort of discounts how many states are using money as a means of control, and as a means of controlling the um, mobility of the opposition or whoever is challenging a certain leadership. Mm. So you freeze the funds to freeze the uh, resistance. Yeah, yeah. And that's done That's a classic so way of, of uh, sanctioning a country that you yes. don't like. Yeah. You freeze the funds of the leaders of that country, for instance. Exactly, yeah. So, so that's the big crypto proposition is saying that we don't necessarily want money to be tied to personhood. And uh, then some people very... Um, on a small scale, start to react to, well, won't that lead to like drug trafficking of in this cryptocurrency and so on? But I think we have much bigger problems and much bigger actors to take into account than, than small scale um, uh, drug uh, trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's more fundamental That's probably issues. probably more, more of a child disease, perhaps. It's, it's something that will happen in the beginning yeah, you, of, a, of, a, of, an, of a transition to cryptocurrency yeah you can definitely I mean that that would be the first the obvious adopters early adopters mm. who uh, yeah. but the, the question is I think do you would you rather have um, a lot of petty crime or some actors that are able to do crime so vast uh, that they're also able to to write the laws around things and and make sure because as we know things that are illegal and immoral uh, it's not not always the same thing and just because something is legal not, doesn't no. make it moral yeah and morality changes over time definitely as does illegality mm-hmm. i was when i checked that list of uh, of contents for your book i uh, i looked for education and the education system and i found it but it it was an under it was a subtitle mm-hmm. below the 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 heading norms, norms. Mm-hmm. So in my world, uh, the education system is very central and crucial for, for, for the whole, if you want to call it the matrix of society mm. that we're all ruled by. But you have put it a little bit lower there. Why? Uh, because I would say the education system is one of several ways to establish norms. And norms uh, for what what counts, what's important, uh, what the, the history of the world is, mm. what the hist- what the story of, of our current world is too. And so I would put it more as a, a yeah, like a one way of establishing norms. Um, but because we've tried to put things on the same order of magnitude, it's like the education system uh, works to put norms in place. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Than. That makes sense. That makes sense. But I, well, in, in my, I guess it's it's a bit uh, subjective how 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 you wanna. <laughs> in what order you wanna oh, put things? Oh, for sure. In. Yeah. So. And we have also that's also it's a very. It's clearly probably the most contentious subjects you can touch upon, and we have that we have them all. So, so yeah. one of the things is that we're when we're releasing it, we're also releasing it with a digital interface, where if you don't agree with something, you can update it, and then of course we retain editorial control over the next edition. But the idea is to channel as much constructive feedback as possible. So perhaps you you think it should be on the same level, then we would very much encourage you to make that case. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I believe in that way of uh, uh, write. I think it's like the next generation of writing nonfiction, yeah. where you are not only 
uh, open to feedback or criticism. You anticipate it, you want it, you ask for it because the goal is not for you to be the expert. The goal is to make something that is useful for as many people as possible. And then we're back to the wisdom of the crowd. Wisdom of the crowd. Yeah, that's beautiful. I like it. Uh, you said, uh, I've heard you say several times that you've always been ob- obsessed with power. Yeah. <laughs> so can you explain a little bit more what obsessed in what way and what kind of power? So I, to, the definition of power that I think is um, is most useful is that it's your capacity to influence others to effectuate your will or materialize your will. So for that reason, I think we're all kind of obsessed with power because we want our will to be effectuated mm. and then I think fairly early I remember reading like Tom Sawyer the first scene when he's painting the um he's he's painting some really boring fence and he manages to get people to paint it for him uh, by pretending that it's really fun uh, and so they start to compete over essentially doing yeah, his chore. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> kind of funny. Yeah, and then he uses all the different bribes he gets uh, from people uh, that he uh, that he takes in exchange to essentially get him to help him. And he takes those and he trades them for something. Uh, and it was it was just so fascinating to me to see these examples of. Um, how do you exact influence mm-hmm. and and so on? And then I mean I could go deep into why I'm so <laughs> fascinated with it. But I think um, what I came to realize uh, fairly—I mean not super late, but fairly ra- late in all the things that I've done in my life—is that um, you can you can spend your time working on any kind of symptom um, of what is essentially a system for power, and you will keep. Uh, sort of trying to empty a boat that is leaking. It's it's a it's a Sisyphus task mm-hmm. unless you start to attack the root cause, which is the way a certain system is designed when it comes to who gets to make and enforce which decisions in what way during what circumstances. Yeah. So it sort of led me to stop working on. So I mean, I I was very active in the. Um, I both worked with religion and and gender and sexuality and all kinds of things that you might think are unrelated, but nothing is unrelated no, from power. No, no. Uh, so so it it's power is at the of, core of all is. these these aspects yeah. of life. Yeah, it really is. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I think it it just over time I came to really uh, it crystallized into now I want to work on the actual governance. Um, yeah. And and you uh, live a life where your kind of private life and your work life, if there is such a thing, uh, go together. I mean, they are intertwined. Yeah. You, yeah. You're really, I mean, obsessed not only with power but with, <laughs> with trying to make the world a, a more interesting and better place for. for yeah, everyone. I I think it's. Uh, I I just love to to do this kind of work, and yeah. it consumes me. And I don't think that there is any space for anything. Else, of course, I have a lot of relationships with human beings, and I, I adore <laughs> human beings. That's the sort of core of uh, why I'm so interested in doing anything at all. But um, it's a matter of people who want to help me, who want to further this this vision of uh, along, and and they're very welcome to to be a part. But it's an overarching. Some you know ambitions can be uh, all consuming, and and that can be more or less healthy. But I hope it's in a healthy way. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, so you talked 
about so many things and about your book and 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 it's of course the book um, encompasses uh, most of what you're working with these days um maybe you can you can delve a little bit more into this this thing of digital jurisdictions and digital digital governance well you i don't know if you want to do that because sure. you ha- you have touched on it but w- what is digital jurisdiction and also automated automated compliance you talked about that yeah uh and you mentioned the example of us uh, using um, these uh, social media things and and we we accept the rules that are set there yeah. and yeah so absolutely i, I guess those are those go, go together those they things. really do mm-hmm. uh, i would say what has happened is we have changed as a species but we haven't really like woken up and celebrated that or done much with that but what has uh, what has occurred in most of our lifetimes i mean depending on the i don't know the demographic of the listeners but i would think most are uh, re- remember the internet in some way or another coming and this going from that there was a scarcity in information and a scarcity in people to just having this abundance available to mm. us but then instead of having um platforms where we can start to connect with people who share the same narrative of the world who share the same ideas and construct societies with those people around those ideas around those values um some companies came in that were lovely at offering us um experiences that were very tempting uh, but not necessarily or at all empowering and so currently people are like angry with their own devices or talking about devices being distracting and yeah. not like sort of missing the point of that it's not the technology in itself it's the current application the current application that is um not aligned not trying to deliver us more satisfaction or freedom that's not the purpose of any of these platforms because it's not the business model and so what we need to do at this moment is essentially create platforms that are aligned with our goals So if I want to be a more um happy person or a more connected human with someone who feels deep fulfillment and purpose and um and solidarity with others those need to be what the the platforms are catering for they they are to gamify that experience for me yeah. instead of a experience where I'm trying to Where, where someone is trying to retain me in a loop of endless scrolling for things that uh, speak to the the worst, not the best angels of my nature. Um, so that shift needs to happen now mm. because for every moment that we're spending on predatory platforms, uh, the data about our behaviors is being gathered and then used against us to retain us further. And um, that brings us to what I think is going to be the tool that is on an equal level as the monopoly of violence has been for our society so far and that is the asymmetry of prediction mm. and that means that sort of like if you're raising a child and you know sort of the patterns of this child you can predict its behaviors and the more you can predict someone's behaviors the better you can control them and that is happening with all of us we're becoming predictable and not just with which which ad we're going to click on but on a more granular level and when we are so predictable that we have 
algorithms that know us better than we know ourselves, then what is the way out of a system like that? But that that yeah. ma- makes us sound like we're machines in a way. I mean, robots, flesh robots. <laughs> I would argue that we are. We are reinforcement learners. I uh, mean, you can always uh, you can always just step out of that. I think if you're aware what you're doing. And if you if you are complaining that it's taking too much of my time, it's just uh, I hate these algorithms. I just get the same all the time. Then you can just stop. Or no. can't you? I think that you can't. <laughs> I think right now it's still fairly possible to stop, but the cost is high because, uh, like like we talked about before, these are the companies that are currently um, they have the infrastructure. They control the infrastructure for our relationships. So opting out of certain platforms is all. If all your friends are are doing their birthday invitations on Facebook and inviting mm. each other that way, if you're not on Facebook, you know people will forget about you to to an extent at least. So it's like the social cost I think is way too high. We can't put on an individual to stand up to a system that has so much more. Uh, data and data is power to mm-hmm. uh, well that's true. Uh, yeah it makes sense i understand what you're talking about there yeah but maybe you can just use it uh, passively a little bit you can you can see if th- something ha- something's happening and then you you check what's happening and maybe you as you say you congratulate people when they have their birthday and all those things but yeah i think it's like we deserve to have all the nice features but we yeah. shouldn't accept any of these bad features uh, uh. and if it was more democratic uh, then we could get the user experiences that we that we want and deserve but i think that's that's why i, I always get concerned when people say now now i've sort of i'm going on a social media break it's yeah, just i always want to sort of pause and be like okay mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. what are you pausing because mm-hmm. here we have this beautiful opportunity of connecting to each other and just because it's not done in a way that's currently serving us does that mean we should opt out of it altogether and go like you know live out in the country and and say that you know reject civilization mm. essentially and i think it's very important to just reject the parts that don't serve us yeah. but really go in on uh, utilizing yeah. the parts that do serve us and that, that could serve enha- us much that more that love that do yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm with you there, uh, but don't you think these big tech companies started out uh, as as being good entities? They wanted to do good, and and uh, or did they anticipate that they were going to make tons of money from the start out on? Or do so I don't think there is um, a conflict between being benevolent and wanting to make tons of money. I think it just comes down to uh, incentive structures. Like I'm not vilifying anyone or anything here it's just a matter of what is the goal what is the legal goal of a certain entity mm. and the legal goal of an entity that is a public company is to uh, maximize profit for its shareholders and there is nothing horrible about that there is, it's just factual uh, this is the goal which is not the same thing as the goal of um helping the users um, live more connected, fulfilled lives. Sometimes it happens to coincide, but there is nothing in the design that would, um, um, yeah, there's nothing in the design that would guarantee that mm. it coincides. So so the way to solve this, is that by way of starting new um, companies that are <laughs> benevolent or maybe maybe following the same trajectory as, as the former ones, or is it by way of us users changing our behavior and as you say actively reject those the, the parts of the the algorithms and, and and what's happening that are bad for us and uh, focusing on on the good stuff on the on the social 
I don't think it's realistic that we as users on uh, on Facebook um, do anything at all there uh, because it's uh, there are no streets for us to protest on in the digital world, so to speak. Yeah. There is no way for us. We have to invent uh, the wheel away- once do. again. Then we yeah. do, uh, and I mean, many there are many attempts at doing this, like whether it's MeWe or Ello. Uh, yeah, I can see so it. So they're coming, yeah. and and it's a matter of critical mass because the. Um, the thing with networks is that, uh, with social platforms, is that they're um, they're all. What's in play is the thing called the network effect, where a platform is only as useful as the network that is on the platform is is big and strong. Mm-hmm. So that means that right now, if you go into a new perfectly owned network, that's when, but but none of your friends are there. It mm-hmm. won't be particularly useful to no, you. No. Um, <laughs> that's the problem. But I think this this catch twenty two. That it is. But the to understand that ownership models, it's like the we're at that moment of you have nothing to lose but our chains, but but when it comes to our digital chains, that's where we are right now. Uh, and so I think Nathan Schneider is a great thinker on this. He has a book that's called To Hack and to Own, which is about something called platform cooperativism, which looks at how can we actually be in control over our own uh, meeting places. And this is like, because um, the question of could we reform Facebook, for example, could we expropriate Facebook that's uh, I think you can definitely make the case that that would that Facebook by now is a common uh, because you have uh, so much reliance on it you have such a the thing that to an extent Mark Zuckerberg personally has done mm. is connected more people than any emperor has ever done before yes. and I think you have to understand him as an emperor you have to look at um, his influences which among others, is Alexander the Great, not coincidentally. So it's seeing, okay, so what are the next moves there? And and there you can always follow the patents. What is Facebook investing in? And one of the things right now, of course, is AR, AR augmented reality and VR, um, immersive experiences that will, if you have glasses, Facebook glasses on all the time, that allow you to, for example, control the facial uh, expressions of the people you're seeing, which has already, like, that's possible now. Like, I can wear a pair of glasses so that you will smile when I look at you, really? whether you do or not. <laughs> yeah. And and that's... that's um, Ooh, that's yeah, eerie. <laughs> that is eerie. And it's it definitely, yeah, we, we go into that for, for a long time. But the core idea is that then you're going to have Facebook collect data on you constantly. Yeah. Because there is, if you're wearing something, you're essentially allowing the device to keep collecting mm. everything about mm. you. So follow the patent. Follow the patent, not, yeah. Not follow money Follow anymore. both. Follow yeah. both. Follow the investments and follow yeah. the, the patent. Talking about uh, facial expressions mm-hmm. and a t- time of face masks mm. when we can't see each other's fa- facial expressions. These are strange times. So what has this pandemic taught you about governance? And the way that the public reacts to governance, and how how have we been doing? You think? Uh, it's I mean you can go to Idea, uh, the Democracy Watchdog organization, or they do a lot of really interesting research too. But they have an amazing uh, mapping of which civil liberties have been breached in which regions and so on. So you can, if you just want a sort of. Uh, that layer, that's a great sor- uh, resource. Uh, but otherwise, it has propelled the dematerialization. Uh, 
it's mm. really turned us into much more of these digital inhabitants who I am arguing here would, we really need to become digital citizens. Yeah. And we need to do that through um, owning our own platforms. Because uh, what is Zoom, really? We just went on there and yeah. accepted whatever it roles. There. It was there and now <laughs> we're there. And what are they collecting? I don't know. Like that's the, the kind of sentiment. It's like if there is a product that's useful to me, I'm going to take it. And I think what we have kept doing for way too long now is we have traded our data in exchange for... Um, convenience for a convenient experience so we've made our lives smoother and in the case of corona it was also we were just trying to solve a problem Mm -hmm. here and now Mm. like right right now and every time that we do that and don't know where our data is ending up we have to stop viewing data as something that has to do with privacy data has to do with power whoever you are giving your data to you are becoming predictable for Mm. So, uh, so that uh, I think is going to be when we zoom out the biggest thing that uh, that COVID probably has very clearly done, which is just how much time, which translates to how much data is given to certain entities and how predictable we are becoming as a result. Mm. Um, and so, so I think that's that's a big one. What about the massiveness of data? Let's say yeah. that because that's that's the thing. Uh, it it, it Let's say that there is um, there is everything everything there is to know about me and you and everybody on this earth is accessible somehow to every other person. Mm-hmm. So the, the complete I mean it's almost like the Akashic records, you know, this spiritual idea that everything that is to know about everybody is available to to anybody. Wouldn't that water down the risks of power abuse? I mean, I'm just mm. philosophizing very, very far here, but yeah. because if there's a lot of data in, in in my world, in my book, it means that it's actually less uh, problematic because it's it's it, it, it's a lot of hassle for for the powerful to to use it. Well, anyway, I'm yeah. No, but uh, I think you definitely have a point. If if it would be a matter of that everyone knows everything about everyone, yeah, then it would be um, you wouldn't have this concentration of power. Mm. Uh, but that's not how it's being done. Instead, what and it's a, it's not about. Um, so when I say there is a new tool that is as strong as the monopoly of violence, it's the asymmetry of prediction, and that comes from the asymmetry of who has data on mm. whom. Mm. So what do you, what do we know about Google's plans? Nothing. It's not like you know they're sharing that. And it, there's been fantastic quotes like Eric Smith and and Mark Zuckerberg both have said these ridiculous things about privacy not being a norm anymore and all these kinds of things. All the while, their own way of conducting business and conducting life completely secret is now. something completely exactly. <laughs> so it's it, it double standard. I call mm. that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, th- this COVID-19 is something that's happening. And, and also, uh, here comes a question about the nation state, and, and which is part of this whole matrix thing that we're talking about. For a couple of years now, we've seen and been reading about street protests uh, in a score of countries on every continent, actually. And they're continuing even, even through this pandemic. How do you assess the present turbulence in the world, are the many uprisings and protests in the streets around the globe a sign that maybe at least parts of the old order are crumbling? 
Yeah, I think it's it's more than a hundred countries in the last three years that have had uh, that street. Yeah, and of course that's indicative of of something. Mm. And I would I would say it's um, whether it's crumbling the existing world order. I think then we have to look at what part of the order because there are certain parts. Early signs. Early signs. Yeah, I would say. Um, It's clear that there are other ways to construct societies. And it's clear that there are inconsistencies in what's happening, things that just don't make sense. Like how much sense does it make that these fairly random territories in in this world is handling the same disease so differently? Yeah. Like why are we listening to... Um, Fine if it has to do with the strength of the um, healthcare system only, but it clearly doesn't. It has to do with all kinds of random things. And and right now it still seems that people are fairly compliant with whatever their state is suggesting is uh, like this is how much masks you can wear. And of course, compliance is, is very different in different places. Mm. But we... This doesn't make sense. Like it's a global problem, and we're trying to solve it with these national um, measures. Mm. And I think what people might be getting right now, on different levels of sort of understanding, but is that problems are different, and they need to be handled on different levels—levels levels that fit them. So, what? parts of our lives should be handled on a global level and what parts should be handled on a national level are there any at all that should be handled on a national level what is a national level what is that random layer uh, where we say that everyone within this territory those are the people i should feel most loyal towards like mm. what how much sense that that does to young people make? less and less i would say less and less yeah and you can see this uh, do you identify as a global citizen service um, and they're very interesting because it's not necessarily the places you would think uh, that where peop- a lot of people are saying no i'm a global citizen rather than a nigerian citizen for example uh, so that's one of the for countries instance, nigeria yeah. where yeah. people say yeah. a lot of people yeah. say global citizen there and, and and yeah, um, so what should be on on a global level? What should be on a national level? Yeah. And what can be at a local level yeah. and at an extremely local level, like a tailored? This is on my community level, yeah. and this mm. is where there are um, projects. And I don't know how they're going to play out, but I think they're extremely interesting on an idea level, like region villages, for example, mm-hmm. that have to do with creating an automated. A micro society, um, sort of like a eco village. Sometimes it's called the Tesla of eco villages uh, because it's all the hippie fun, but none of that um, labor that uh, collapsed so many hippies' dreams uh, who were urban intellectuals who tried to live uh, rural. Uh, lives that were actually quite laborsome and required a lot of skills that people didn't have. So this is a much more, I think, realistic version where you're saying we want a lot of the things to be super local. We want the food production to be as local as possible. We want the production through 3D printers. We could have the production of a lot of our everyday things be on a very, very local level. We don't have to be as dependent on long supply chains. And then we want some things that have to do with the global catastrophic risks that could ruin all the fun mm. uh, 
we want that to be separate and we want that to be handled in a sound scientific way. So sort of like in the Netherlands, for example, you have had uh, for hundreds of years this existential threat of the water coming in. And so what they have is a system with water boards that are separate from the political system that is just about handling the existential threat of water. And that's the kind of system I think many would be interested in. And they consist of people from different different parts of society? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's very expert driven, but it's not... And it is a democracy. You do vote for your representatives, but it is not, um, you can't politicize water. Mm. And I don't think you should be able to politicize any of the global catastrophic risks. It's like that has to be, It's that. that's the essential. We can fight about everything, but whether or not the civilization continues on, mm. uh, whether or not our species is here, to me, that's too important to make into um like a bargaining ship to get into office. Yeah. Well, let's touch this on. It, it's connected to what we started talking about, uh, c- colonizing other planets and, mm. and, and going out into space. It's mm. the same thing, really. Yeah. So this is these are amazing, amazing issues here. Uh, you are... Uh, I want to finally just uh, touch on a uh, more philosophical, spiritual um, thing, maybe. Uh, depending on how you see it. What about the very nature of humans? Mm. Because you are, I mean, at the very core of your your ideas about governance are the very properties of ourselves. You're talking a lot about agency, of course, uh, the agency of individuals and and emancipation, liberation. Um, And some still tend to think, as we talked about before, that people can't rule themselves and, But do you think that we are, as a species, evolving? That this is the period in history where where we finally have the capability of to emancipate, not not just because of the internet, but because we have evolved. Or do you think that we are essentially Stone Age uh, creatures that happen to have this advanced technology, or is it does it go together, so so to speak? Are we evolving, and are we continuing to evolve? Do you think? I think. Um I'm someone else when I have access to Wikipedia than I would be without it. I would say that mine and many other people's usage of devices is actually a change in our bodies. That my body doesn't stop in my hand, it stops in the device I'm holding. And for that reason, we are, I think, different. We are different not because the internet exists outside of us, but because it's a part of us. And... um, what has, how that changes our capacity to feel empathy and how we can feel as close to someone on the other side of the world. That is a new feature of this species, of this human feature, mm. uh, of this human species and, and the elements that go into being human. So I, I think that opens up another way to organize societies too, where we don't have to be physically close to the people that we love and and many people aren't many people uh, spend their lives working in a country where they're treated horribly just to be able to send money back to another place uh, where there are people who they care deeply about like that's that's how we are now mm. and i just think that this is the moment where we could also create and claim platforms that help us live that way in a way that is um, 
more just than what we have now, where when you are born, um, you get a lottery ticket, and that's the passport uh, that you happen to to be assigned at birth. And if that was a good lottery ticket, good for you. That's going to affect your life more than what gender you're born in or assigned or uh, any other circumstance. Wonderful. So where can listeners, the listeners now, check out your work and your ideas and also share their ideas with you? Uh, I think either my own website, karenism.com, as I spell Karen with a C, uh, or thefoga.org. That would be the best place. Thefoga.org. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Karenism, it's been an education, and thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you.